0: Hello, and welcome to the BarCast. I'm your host, Nick Barr, recording this on our nation's birthday, 4th of July. Uh, You might be able to hear it from my voice, but I'm a bit under the weather. Uh, As a result, I'm not going to be seeing the fireworks tonight, although my understanding is San Francisco is really not much for fireworks anyway, given the fog. Another consequence of my sickness is that... um, Hopefully there's a, there's sort of a nice, velvety, uh, baritone addition to the BarCast this episode. I'll, I'll listen back later and find out if this is a good radio voice. I like to think that it is. Uh, but the other consequence might be that I'll break out into spasmic coughing, so I apologize for that in advance. It's been about four weeks or so since the last BarCast, so it's been a while. I was reminded of that by one of the BarCast's patrons, that's right, we have a Patreon, so uh, if you're enjoying these, certainly uh, support us, Uh, and by us, I mean me, so uh, I I figured I'd get back in the saddle and and talk about I.O., E-Y-E-O, a conference I attended last week in Minneapolis. I.O., I don't know what iOS tagline is, but it's a meeting of technologists and artists and certainly this year in particular, activists to share their work, their perspectives, and ideally collaborate in ways that make certain folks aware of what other folks are doing, often across disciplines, designers, engineers, mixed media artists. Um I was familiar with IO in part from the school for poetic computation which uh, is formerly based out of Orbital in the Lower East Side and now they have their own space and it's a really good group of people uh, some of whom I've supported in like very lightweight ways like helping um, run a couple of events but mostly just as a fan seeing their their work at the end of the year and um the Some of the folks who run SFPC spoke at IO. Um, Zach Lieberman, Taeyun Choi, um, Amit Pitaro didn't speak, but Alex Chen, his collaborator, did. And these are people who are like, uh, I really, really admire them. And uh, I would say represent a sort of ideal for me. I mean I, I romanticize the heck out of them and what they do, but uh, and I'm also now generalizing them into like one bucket of person. But I would say for for each of these people you can certainly say that they're incredibly talented and incredibly focused and pretty pretty darn serious about what they do. And so there's a there's a level of clarity to their work that I really admire even if they're uh, speaking or writing about a lack of clarity uh everyone feels very grounded um, and everyone is unabashedly an artist um, independent of their technical ability so we'll get to it later in, in the podcast but you know certainly when i when i go to these conferences or even when i go to these gallery shows or talks or uh, events uh, i always do quite a bit of me search that's research about myself and I'm still um, I I don't have any insights to share at the end of this, but I certainly have to reconcile how much I admire these people and yet how alien they and their work feels to me. So we'll get back to that. By the way, I think SFPC is taking applications. I can't personally recommend class having never uh, enrolled in it, but I, I can say that um, I've heard really great things. The teachers are. Unbelievable people. I think it would probably be a great opportunity. So check that out. That's SFPC. So um, maybe we'll get to some of the themes of the conference, but I thought I would at least spend a little bit of time on some of the highlights. So I suppose we'll start with Robin Sloan's talk which was probably the one I was most excited about coming into the conference, if only because Robin Sloan's work is more directly up my alley. So I I love what, for instance, Zach does. And so Zach, to uh, briefly describe his work, and also from someone who doesn't really know what he does, so I'm sure I'm butchering his CV, but... He's he's a teacher, right? He teaches. Uh he also invented and I, I presume helps maintain open frameworks, which is a programming language um used by many of the people who attended IO. Here comes the first co- cough. <coughs> Excuse me. Um and then I, I figure he probably does some personal work, potentially commercial work. Um uh anyway, like so Zach is great. I, I would love to snap my fingers and have those abilities to teach and to create technology platforms and to work within those technology platforms that I've created. But that's quite far away from me. Whereas Robin is a writer who is interested in writing tools and is interested in what you could call new interfaces for creating text to put a slightly academic-y spin on it. And those are things that are like very much, uh, my interests, and to some extent within my abilities, and Robin, uh, Robin surprised me in his talk about how technical he he is or, or can be. Um, he he's like running like a little uh, machine learning box in his home. Sort of created basically little rigs uh, on his own, and is reading. Papers that are coming out right now, and we'll talk about those in a second. But I, I didn't know that Robin was that legit at on the tech side. Uh, I knew he was a great writer. the The two pieces of his that I know, I don't know his essay, which is Mister Penumbra's something or other. Um, but I, I've, I think I probably first became familiar with him through Fish, which is an iPhone app that sort of had its moment. It was just tap, like tap to continue through the story, but it's just such a really tightly executed thing and inspire at least two beta works companies, Tapestry and Homebound. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, uh, Hardbound. Um, and, you know, anytime people are trying to create good writing and reading experiences for mobile, that's something that I care about and support. And Fish was sort of one of the early. Instances of it, and the message of fish is kind of cool too, which just sort of has to do with the notion of loving and uh, how loving is different than liking. And so, liking is is a verb that is well established on the internet and social media. But how do we understand and build around loving the things that we come back to over and over again? And so, anyway, that's fish. Uh, and then I also I read an essay recently by him that I really enjoyed. Which, which, uh, it's sort of like, uh, it takes place in a Facebook post and is about Facebook. And it was just this night, nice, tight integration of like uh, medium and message, and was a little sci fi y, uh, kind of like a a short thriller. So I, I would recommend that. I don't, I don't know what it's called, but I'm sure you can find it easily if you search like Robin Sloan Facebook story. Try, try that. See how it goes. Anyway, Robin presented sort of his works in progress, which is something that um, many of the talks took this template, which was simply just like, here's what I'm working on. And the first thing he showed was something that I was already familiar with, which is neat, which is a uh, sort of a text completer. Excuse me. I'm drinking if you think uh, so, you might think, "Hey, Nick is sick, so he's he must be drinking an herbal tea with lemon and ginger." I'm drinking black coffee with Jim Beam. So uh, now you know a little bit more about how I take care of myself. Uh, yeah. So this this uh, first project of Robin's, he trained a thingy on a bunch of sci-fi from the fifties. And from that, uh, built sort of a text editor integration in which he can be typing in at any point, tap tab and sort of shuffle through suggested sentence completers, um, generated by this, um, this algorithm. And so, you know, I, I, one of my to do's is to sort of better understand what's going on under the hood. Cause I've dabbled extensively with Markov chains. And you can check out either of my iPhone apps in the store now today at text adventure in space or Jonas, both of which use very simple Markov chains at first glance. Like I didn't see, they didn't, the sentences didn't blow me away. Um, They didn't seem to be like uh, imbued with uh, any kind of intelligence that um, has come out of the recent, machine learning advancements. These sentences aren't playing go and beating world champions as far as I can tell. So I don't really know what to make of the, of the substance yet, but certainly the, the space is interesting to me. And then um, after some music stuff that was kind of cool, which I'll just skip over, Robin shared a, a new project, which was super interesting, which basically position sentences in multidimensional space based on presumably a number of variables and and, and attributes. Um, and so what, what this spatial positioning allows one to do is then to generate sentences that exist in this space um, based on the coordinates of other sentences. So for instance, if I have um, one sentence, hello world, at coordinate A, in another sentence, she looked longingly out the window and coordinate Z, I can then say, give me a sentence that's M. That's perfectly between these two. Or give me a sentence that's like D, a little bit on the hello world side, which is such like a weird thing to wonder um, about. And I love, I, I mean, just Robin is great. He's a great presenter and I love the way he thinks. And so One of the things I loved about how he presented it was he was like, okay, like first I used my own intuitions and he showed what, what his intuitions were. And he, he sort of mapped his way into this midpoint from these two sentences. And then he said, here's what the, here's what the, um, algorithm did. And, uh, he called uh, attention to just one little detail that I I also thought was beautiful, which was, I think, I don't remember the first sentence, but it was a little bit more constructed. And the last sentence was, I love you exclamation point. And so, if the first sentence had the word rockets, like his his penultimate sentence was something like "I love rockets," Um, but the algorithm's penultimate sentence was "I love you." Period, and then uh, "I love you!" Exclamation point. Sort of this double downing affirmation. So, you know, like you get these little uh, moments out of these generative programs, but I, I don't know. I'm 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 interested to dig deeper into it and see. If it's like a whole new world or if it's just sort of if markup chains or junior varsity, this is varsity because um, it still seems like we're quite a far way away from um, anything that that is inherently interesting. It just seems like, you know, we're, we're able to just sort of create stuff that if you smash tab enough times, you'll get something a little bit interesting, but it's it's like fishing um, they, they don't feel like, uh, curated nuggets for, for the writer's enjoyment. But I think if there's one thing that I loved about Robin's talk, it was, and he repeated this many times, it was sort of, I think he, he used this phrasing of like pushing through the weird that he wasn't really interested in, Hey, look, here's what the script made for me, or here's what the algorithm produced. He takes this very seriously. And then that's that seriously is sort of the, the main word that he used, like, he's a writer and he's trying to create new tools to make him a better writer and make him produce better writing. And he wants us to sort of keep pushing through the weird. And that's something that I share um, really deeply. So that was an invigorating talk. Um, Another talk I really enjoyed uh, was this group, Complex Movements. They are a Detroit-based collective and, like, the most down-to-earth – well, I shouldn't say – down-to-earth is wrong. Like, unaffected. Uh, they're a very dead serious group of people, but they sort of just very naturally talk through things that could have been the subjects of, like, other people's talks in passing. Um, I'll give an example. Like, they, they have constructed this sort of, like, 3D – I mean, it's a stage, but it's, it's, it's like a hive stage. And so each panel of the hive can project its own video. And that's the, that's their performance space. And people sort of sit inside of the pod or the hive. Um, and they're like, yeah, you know, we needed to rehearse and, and figure it out. So we, we made a smaller hive, but that, that was too, it you know, didn't really work. So, so we just like set it up in VR and then, then they moved on. But like, just the mere idea of like VR for rehearsal was like super impressive and, and wild. Um, and, but for them, these were sort of things like, yeah, you know, Hey, we, we read a bunch of, com- you know, literature about complex networks and took away six, uh, what do they call them? Uh, not enigmas, six, um, insignias. Maybe that was the word they used. Dandelions, ants, ferns, they had, like, had all these other things. And like, they're just like, they're just powering through this talk Um, and any one of these things could have been like a talk unto itself. Uh, at least some of them are hip hop artists. And like at the, at the beginning they sort of mentioned, um, basically like they got an ultimatum from one of their founding members. He was like, I'm not, I just don't, I'm not going to rap anymore. So like, if you want to continue working with me, we need to find a new medium. And that was sort of the impetus for this, this project. Anyway, they tore the country maybe the world, um, putting these performances on and then working with local organizers. Um, they're inspired by a bunch of different people and they had some nice videos. I, I'm sure if you're, if you're in this space, you know all about like Grace Lee Boggs, but she was a new name for me and anyway, that's complex movements. And they were really great. Um, just like super impressive uh, and, and focused. And I think that was probably what I admire most about them is they just sort of seem to be like extremely productive and focused and serious. Um, and then I, I, I'll give two more talks that I thought were of note. Um, the first was probably the most talked about talk, at least in my conversations. And uh, I don't remember the name of the talk, but it was about complex networks. And the speaker's first name was Laszlo. He's Hungarian. And he he works at sort of one of those research institutions. It's like, I guess half university connected, but then he also seems to do like f- consulting work. Um, he brought up a consulting project where they worked with a company to sort of help troubleshoot some things through network analysis. Anyway, his, uh, the project that he spent the most time focusing on was, um, art and the value of art. And so, um, how might we, um, understand or predict an artist's success based on at least in part where they show their work and the TLDR of that talk shouldn't be too surprising to people it's sort of like rich get richer Um, if you start your career in one of these prestigious galleries or museums you'll stay there Um, and, and if anything your success will continue to climb Um, in part because everyone has a vested interest in you staying there, right? So the Met doesn't want its artists to slip. Um, And, you know, in contrast, if you start in a lower gallery, it's very hard to sort of work your way up to the top. It's possible, um, but it's very difficult. Um, So it's sort of rich club, poor club. I'm sure it has analogs across (coughs) other fields. You could probably look at colleges and stuff like that. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I wasn't like the conclusions of the talk weren't that interesting, but he was a very, uh, I would say provocative speaker and spoke provocatively about art in particular. And at some point, you know, sort of said like, look, art has no value. Uh, the only value we can give it is the, the sort of the sale of, of its, uh, of the sale of art. Um, that's sort of how we can measure art. Um, and you know, he said other things, Something that I personally was troubled by was he he took Jean-Michel Basquiat's career and went back to um, a collective called Samo, which was just him and uh, another artist whose name, you know, credit to Laszlo, like now I know this guy's name, Al Diaz. I don't even think he has a Wikipedia page just trying to learn about him, but so it's Al and Jean-Michel Basquiat working in Samo And he basically like used it as a case study of like an A-B test, like two equal artists, um, one of whom became world famous and is now one of the best selling or, you know, most, uh, <coughs> highest selling artists. And Al Diaz is toiling away in obscurity, but like a cursory look at these two artists, um, shows how different their work is. And like Al Diaz's work is nothing like Jean-Michel Basquiat's work. Uh, but the point Lazo was trying to make was, you know, Jean-Michel was a social climber and he falls in with, um, what's that, what's that dude's name? Uh, I don't even want to say uh, I guess we'll just we'll just process it out loud cuz it's the barcast. cast. The soup cans and Marilyn Monroe and Elvis and he's blonde and he's uh kind of a feat and um Andy Warhol and then he he you know falls in with the uh, You know, okay. So um his point was sort of the, the thing that made Jean-Michel Basquiat succeed and Al Diaz Al, yes, not succeed was this sort of social climbing which um, felt really reductionist and even from a scientific perspective uh, wrong. After the talk Tayun <coughs> excuse me who had spoken earlier sort of objected and said you know how troubling he found it And their, their kind of back and forth wasn't super productive but Laslo did sort of clarify his comments in ways that maybe were clear to everyone else but more that he's, he's seeking a way to measure art and lacking any other way. The way he measures it is through sales. Um, it's pretty different than what he said when he said art has no value. And, uh, anyway, it, I, I guess I only bring it up just to sort of say it was a really welcome relief to the other talks because this was a talk that at least some people found troubling and, and pretty much everyone was talking about who attended it. So more, more of those talks, more talks um, that are controversial. Uh, so I, I enjoyed that. And it was interesting to see Laszlo kind of get heated a bit, uh, with when, when Taeyun, Taeyun sort of presented some issues. Um, I don't know. I like, I like, I liked that discomfort. I won't, I won't say more about it, but. And then I guess we'll close, uh, the highlights with, um, a talk that should be maybe a segue into sort of some of the themes or some of my takeaways which was the closing talk of the conference, which was Steve Lambert, an artist with whom I wasn't familiar prior to the conference, um, but has done some installations and has one in Times Square that was like, is capitalism working for you? And you can vote yes or no. But the, the focus of his talk was really around his activism work. Um, he has some center and he basically goes around the world and does these sort of guerrilla projects, um, working with people to, uh, basically figure out how to like show up in change inducing ways. Right. So he talked briefly about one in Spain where they were trying to lower the cost of hepatitis C treatment. Uh, And then uh, spent the bulk of his time talking about uh, his work with sex workers in South Africa, trying to get visibility of the AIDS conference. And it was very much a call to action for the technologists in the crowd to sort of, Hey, like start, like start, start getting involved. He kept saying, I'm here to recruit you. And while I wasn't moved by that particular aspect of it too much, I, I mean, I don't know. I I thought to myself like, Hey, I should, I should get more involved for sure. Uh, but probably that's, that's already a little bit on my radar. Uh, for some reason, I was very moved by his work. Uh, and so when he was, presenting his stuff in South Africa. Like I I was almost like moved to tears when he was showing like the, they, they built something where it's like, it's been X seconds since we talked about sex workers. And so speaker after speaker would come up with this big AIDS convention summit or HIV, whatever the hell. Uh, and, uh, you know, no one was mentioning sex workers and they're sort of marching the crowd and they're, you know, 100 seconds, 1000 seconds, whatever. And then finally someone mentioned sex workers and sort of this outpouring for relief and then more and more people mentioned sex work and it's like on the cover of the newspaper. It was it was such like a success story or it felt like one and it, it was it was sort of structured like a movie. Uh, I guess I was very caught up in in it and so afterward uh I told my my neighbors, you know, that that was probably the 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 most powerful talk that I'd seen. Um and then like after we're talking to more people, uh people are very critical of the talk and I'm a little like loath to go into details. I, I mean it's silly. No one's no one's gonna listen to the barcast, but I, I wanna I, I wanna be thoughtful about how I say this just so that in case someone who's involved in this more directly hears this, they wouldn't feel like I'm speaking out of school, but more than a few people expressed concern about the talk and Steve's the the role that Steve presented himself playing and so uh what i mean by that concretely is you know there's there's hey here's Steve the american coming to all these other countries um it, you know the starkest relief is in south africa a bunch of black women and white steve Um, but Spain too. And, and Steve a couple times was like, I don't know, I don't know anything about this country. Like I come in basically blind. I do a little bit of research, but it's almost good to not have too much knowledge. That was something that he said. And so that was, that was already sort of troubling for folks. And then, uh, in addition to that, (laughs) Steve did seem to like put himself, if not at the center, he, he did seem to sort of be in every photo. Uh, and that might just be optics. I, I was completely blind to it. Um, but people pointed out like, yeah, like a lot of these photos or a lot of these artifacts of the process didn't really need to have Steve in them, but you know, he, he was always you know pointing himself out and, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't really know what to make of it, but it was certainly legit criticism, uh, when I reflected on it. And it's, it was kind of interesting to me because I think of myself as pretty critical. And when I say critical, I don't mean negative or cynical. I mean, I, I think I look at things through a critical eye for the most part, by default, but I was really sort of swimming in the talk and caught up in it. So things were pointed out to me later that I, I hadn't, just hadn't registered. Um, uh, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'm not going to mention this anecdote yet, but maybe we'll see. If I drink some more of my spiked coffee, I might um, let it out. Anyway, the. but this is a good segue into at least one of the themes that emerges from, from this talk, which was sort of like the artist versus tech worker dichotomy and how, how real is that dichotomy and what, what should we do with that dichotomy? Uh, I would say, you know, from my, from my experience at that, at least at that conference, it was very real that um, artists were looking at these talks through art classes and tech people were looking at these talks through tech classes and I don't know which glasses I looked at it through and are there I'm sure plenty of people like me who don't quite fit neatly into one or the other. And uh, you know, that's 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 all about lenses, right? I mean you can be a tech person and look through artist glasses. But I I guess I I'm guess I'm saying I, I believe in the glasses and I've been trying to figure out how to articulate what those different lenses mean. And Steve's talk and thinking about it made me come up with at least one version of this, which is I I think there's the utility lens. Was this talk useful? Particularly, was it useful to me? Did I come away with a new perspective or some tools to put in my toolkit or some takeaways or some action items or some to-dos? What was the upshot? What was the expected value? And did I get that value? Um, This is a a business perspective, a tech perspective engineering perspective this is an optimizations perspective this is a uh yeah you know i think you get the point um i I can't i can't speak for kevin kevin if you made it this far you know feel free to correct me but i I would imagine this is the talk this is sort of a lens that you look at things through just having having heard you talk about uh, uh, not just this event but others like How useful was it? And how useful did I hope it was going to be? And like, did it match those expectations? And given the value of the people in the room, like did they outperform, underperform, or perform? And so when I like stepped out of the Steve Lambert talk, my utility was very high. Like I I felt, wow, that was a really useful talk. And utility can be measured in in many ways, right? So like I didn't necessarily walk away with like action items, but I felt invigorated and you know, one could – Wire up my skin and and take one of those like, whatever tests the the uh, con- how conductive you know like basically how wet my skin was right isn't that what they do So oh Nick is sort of in a aroused state and gosh I wouldn't be surprised if he goes and phones his local volunteer thing after this right so uh, I mean utility doesn't have to be rational it just sort of has to produce something. And then I think the artist perspective, at least with Steve's talk, was sort of like, is it good? Like, what is its quality? Right. And so, like, um, simply having seven hundred people walk away with a sense of, I want to volunteer, I want to contribute. He's recruited me. That's that's not really what the artist lens is interested in. Um, and so, the presentation of Steve within his Talk is important. Um, the way Steve interacts with people—I mean, people—people people engage with Steve's work more directly, right? Not the, they—they're evaluating the talk, but they're also evaluating what the talk is about. Um, and I don't think it's any less measurable, um, but it's harder to talk about, certainly. And I, I also don't think the the claim isn't that it's subjective. People can disagree about it, but ultimately I think the claim will be that like some people are wrong. And so to that extent, I enjoyed having my eyes opened a bit to people's perspectives on whether it was a good talk or not. And even if I don't a hundred percent end up agreeing with those claims, I enjoyed participating in those conversations, mostly just listening to them. So there's, there's sort of the, the utility versus quality lens that, is is just one ingredient in this in this tech versus artist dichotomy, and again, like it's a it's a false for the most part dichotomy, but it is a useful one. And then you know what do we do with it? Um, I, I think the answer is certainly not that artists art and techies tech. Like that doesn't feel useful. How do we how do we tech with a more artistic lens? I don't think artists need the te- tech lens so much. It's f- like going back to that, like, <coughs> excuse me, when I mentioned like these people who I admire so much, like they're among the most, So I mean, so there's two things. One is like your ability to code. I, I mean, artists that like, there are many great artists who are great coders. Zach is an example. Uh, Alex Chen, who presented his work with music as an example. Like, I, I don't think that's, I don't think there's a story in 2017, which is like, how can art be influenced by technology? Like that, that ship has sailed. There's another version of it, which is like, how can we apply lean methodologies to artists? And that was sort of something that Steve Lambert was promoting, right? He's like, Hey, like it's not about building the website. It's like about like applying this great, he didn't use the word entrepreneurial, but like this framework for, um, this framework for action, um, that maybe some artists or, or non-tech people might lack. And like, I don't even know if that's, resonant at all, because going back to these people who I admire, they're, they're so, I think they're incredibly not just productive, but, um, I mean, you know, these guys started a school that I think at this point is sustainable and they're going into their like fourth or fifth year, like the, the achievements and the victories that artists are able to make, whether it's starting a school, which of course is like a, a an outlier, but simply getting a grant, or applying to grants, doing talks, uh, the amount of hustle that, that requires to me is more impressive, honestly, than the hustle required to raise a seed round. <coughs> um, and again, you know, this is me romanticizing the other for sure, but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what tech techies have to give artists. But, I do know that many many tech organizations would benefit from um, a little bit more artistry, and of course that that's like a loaded claim that can mean all sorts of things. The last thing I'm talking about is adding a bit of whimsy to the load screen. Um, I'm thinking more about that quality lens is what we're doing good, and um, who are the recipients? who is the audience? How are they going to be interacting with it? Are their interactions healthy? Are their interactions sustainable? What are those interactions causing them to feel internally? These sort are of areas of investigation that um, usually just I, I don't think they're invisible to those of us in the tech scene. They just get cut. Like we we got three months to ship, um, and you're gonna have some person saying, like, hey, I wanna go out and interview these people and ask them these questions. What were your reasons? And at the end of the day, you know, did we meet your reasons? And you're like, cool, that sounds like a great project for next year. Um, But anyway, so I I think um, I'll I'll pause there on, on the artists versus technologists theme. It it certainly made me, this talk made me think like, what, what the fuck am I doing with my life? Um, uh, Although that is an easily triggered, uh, rabbit hole these days. Um, I th- just to be blunt, I think I'm very dissatisfied with, um, with myself and my work uh, in general and happened for like, the last couple of years. This isn't, this isn't like a new thing, but I, I long for that focus that I see in other people. Um, this isn't a productivity problem. This isn't a mouth of the funnel problem. I have tons of works in progress. Um, most recently I, I made an app called Pablo. I do have these, these creative writing apps that, um, I think have some potential. I have a couple of poetry projects that I'm excited about. Um, and of course I have a full-time job at Khan Academy, which, um, has been in many ways a, Really rewarding experience, um, in part because I've sort of found a post VC space that I could probably play in in perpetuity. That's education, more or lowercase education. That's like learning, um, and, and really just turns out to be a really great continuation of things that I've always been interested in. Right. So if you think about the work we did at Canvas and DrawQuest after it around the creative habit. In 2011, that was a venture-backable business. How do we get people to be creative every day? In 2017, maybe not, but then you go over to education, and it turns out that, like, oh, educators care desperately about uh, creativity, and and how do we start to weave it into the curriculum? So, like, um, I've kind of made a, um, like, made headway in figuring out how to continue my work um, in a way that's economically sustainable, assuming Either at Khan Academy or, or you know, ultimately after Khan Academy, assuming that I'm able to figure out how to get funding for these kinds of projects, which is a big assumption. Um. But yeah, I, I the one of the first things I did after the talks were over was, um, you know, oh, oh there's gonna be a Trello board. Like, if only I, if I create the right Trello columns, I'll. I'll really be able to, to improve my output. And so when I think about my output, like I'm starting to do this, but it's, it's the, so what of any project I do. I I oftentimes just, I get like this inkling and I I just jump into the project because I'm like, Oh, I I can see it so clearly. So I just need to go heads down and build it. Um, And I'm not wrong. Like I I do have these ideas that are basically fully baked. And then after about three or four months of coding, because I'm not a great programmer there's the idea Uh, but then it's like then what i was talking to my artist cousin aunt claire who told me something that's dead simple and it's something that i already knew with an entrepreneurial or product management stuff but had never really applied to my personal projects which is like work backwards like what does the end look like and and i'm starting to do that i uh with pablo this drawing app that i made this was the first app where I, i went through that exercise and i said i just want to throw a party Um, and I did, I threw a party, um, that was sort of what success looked like. Uh, actually I didn't throw the party, Edlin threw the party and I sort of hopped into the party. So I gave myself like a B minus, but we made it happen. Um, and that was, that was nice. But, you know, going back to this Trello board, like I need to start figuring out like grants and talks, like how do I present my work or how do I share my work? Uh, do I share it? Does it get published? Is there a gallery showing? Um, what is even the right medium for some of these projects? Is it an app? I have to say, I've gotten more and more, uh, in love with apps, the more sort of decadent and on its way out the app store feels like people are downloading, like on average, no apps now. And I've never been more excited about creating in the app store, but that's, that is sort of a bleak, slightly uh, morbid, uh, tendency that I have, which is just sort of like. Jumping onto sinking ships. I just think the app store is very interesting right now. And like, it's, it's at a fun place. Wouldn't be fun to make an app company right now, but it is very fun to, to think about apps on their way out. And that's one of the sort of themes behind one of my projects, which is called Home Screen H O M E S C R E A M, which is sort of like poems and uh, poems in apps about apps that are sort of, interested in in the stage that we're at with with the app store like what does it look like when we use our phones as much as we do and we're checking the same apps we're not really downloading new apps there's a staleness and a slightly like concerning mm, yeah uh, decadence that that i i i'm trying to explore with that project anyway i wanted to reorganize trello but i haven't really done that and like the the part of me that's missing is the hustle part. I have so little hustle. I'm not able to write those emails or round up those grants or take those steps. I'm afraid of rejection and failure and in social interactions where I'm asking people for things. And this is totally commonplace. I don't. I'm not describing a, a rare personality with it, but it's certainly true with me. And it's disproportionately. I think like maybe if there is something that's rare, it's like. Uh, a lot of people who have that, you know, procrastination slash anxiety about these things then also don't produce work. But I think like maybe what's a little bit unusual about me is like I have produced quite a bit of stuff that I, now I don't really know what to do with. And so the amount of overhead that I have is, is itself anxiety producing. Um, well, I guess this has been quite a long barcast, but, um, Hopefully you've, you've made it this far. I guess I'll close with just an anecdote about Minneapolis. So one of the, um, one of the nice things about IO was it was in Minneapolis, which is a city I'd never visited. I have, and I'm an estranged cousin who lives there who I didn't meet while I was out there, but I guess, I, I guess, so I guess I have been to Minneapolis maybe as a like little infant, but. And I, he's not really a strange, I just, I don't I don't have a relationship with him. On Friday, I, I took, I took Friday off, so there was no more conference, and I rented a kayak and kayaked around Lake Calhoun for a bunch of hours, and it was a beautiful sunny day, and I, I laid up on the beach, and I read um, The Witcher book that I, I had recently bought and finished that, and Yeah, it was just like a beautiful summer day in Minneapolis, the sort of time when you're like, oh, I could totally live here. And then you remember that it's, it's like below freezing nine months out of the year. But that day was really beautiful. And then this huge storm cloud came and, um, I, I grabbed my kayak and started like paddling desperately to go back to the rental place. (coughs) But the storm overtook me and started raining and then it started thundering and lightning and I, I'm not, I don't want to die in Minneapolis on some lake. So I, um, I, I got onto the shore sort of randomly, there's a bunch of really nice houses around there and, um, I didn't have any, any, I guess I had a little bit of battery left in my phone. So I looked up what was around, but then my phone died. And so I just sort of felt very like isolated, just wandering around I was like, I should probably find cover. And then, um, walked into a nice bookstore, um, and basically just pretended to peruse for an hour or so until the lightning stopped. Um, and then, uh, I, I, when I went, when I went back to where I, where I laid up my boat, the, the boat was gone. (laughs) So I had like this moment of panic. I was like, Oh fuck, what, what the hell happened to this boat? But then I looked and, and way out on the lake, there was a guy hauling like four boats. I guess a bunch of people had abandoned their boats. And so he had sort of gone and collected them all and was bringing them back to the rental shop. And so I ran over to this bridge where earlier I'd seen kids bridge jumping and I really wanted to bridge jump, but they were like, they're probably 15 or four. Like they were really young. So I I wasn't like, Hey kids, can I bridge jump with you? And maybe the water was too, too shallow for me, but deep enough for them. I don't know. I, 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 it's one of my regrets of the trip, not be, not bridge jumping, but I went to the bridge and I, I shouted down. I was like, "Hey, do my boat," and he did, and he un, untied it from his big knot of boats and gave it to me. And he was happy to do that because he was going really slow. Like he was hauling four boats in himself, like one of those junky little yellow paddle boats. Um, and so I kayaked home. But anyway, uh, in the bookstore, I did I did buy yet another Naruto book, and so I will close. Instead of doing a barcast that is just me reading a Spanish poem, because I know those are very unpopular, I will I'll, I'll shoehorn this this particular one at the end. Okay, so this is um, poem number eight from the Book of Questions, which Naruto wrote. I guess a couple months before he died. I don't know if you knew this, but apparently, in two thousand one, the government of Chile formally announced that Naruto is probably assassinated. So he died in his seventies and was already terminally ill with, I think stomach cancer. Uh, Pinochet had just taken over and Ashende was dead. So like nothing was going to really happen with Neruda. He's, he was going to die soon anyway. And his doctor would come every day and like give him a shot or something. And then one day his doctor was replaced by this other doctor who Naruto didn't know. And he sort of said, like, who are you? He says, I'm the replacement doctor. And then he gave him a shot. And I guess the shot felt different or Naruto was suspicious. He says, you've just killed me. And then the next day Naruto is dead. And so for a long time, you know, his official death was stomach cancer. But I guess recently they've, they've determined that he was almost certainly assassinated. And like, what a cool way to go out. I mean, I don't know if I had terminal stomach cancer and I was this really proud poet of the people. If someone's like, hey, guess what? Like, I've got this amazing opportunity for you. I would definitely, I would definitely choose assassination. That was cool. I wonder why Pinochet, like, bothered. Anyway, this is question, poem eight. So all, all the poems are just questions. And so I'll read it in Spanish and then we'll translate it. Yeah, I'm not translating it. It's, it's a double language book. <clears throat> qué cosa irrita a los volcanes? We'll try it again. Qué irrita a los volcanes que escupen fuego, frío y furia? Por qué Cristóbal Colón no pudo descubrir a España. ¿Cuántas preguntas tiene un gato? Las lágrimas que no se lloran esperan en pequeños lagos. O ríos invisibles que corren hacia la tristeza. So that is poem number eight. Very uh, easy read, although I still managed to butcher it. And this is it in English. What is it that upsets the volcanoes that spit fire, cold, and rage? Why wasn't Christopher Columbus able to discover Spain? How many questions does a cat have? Do tears not yet spilled weight in small lakes? Or are they invisible rivers that run towards sadness? Okay, that'll do it. See you next time.